Good evening, everyone. I have a, a little jug of water here. Our dinner in the monastery was a little salty, so I might need to, to grab that. It's a pleasure again to be with you this evening as we continue kind of a reflection upon the spiritual life, the Christian journey, especially as we begin this season of Lent. I want to start off with a little story, and it really has almost nothing to do with our topic this, uh, this evening, but I wanted to kind of set the stage, kind of create the tenor for our time together this evening. You know, yesterday we began where everything begins, with Almighty God, right, the Alpha and the Omega of our lives, of our world, of all of creation. And we reflected for a little bit together on God's call, God's voice, as God speaks to us, all of us, uh, throughout our lives, no matter where we are in our faith journey. And of course, we were mindful that the initiative belongs to God. It's not our initiative. For whatever reason, God chose us to be his people, to be members of his church, to walk the path toward him. Today, we're going we're gonna to continue that journey, but we're going to de descend from the loftiness of God down into the muck, into the messiness of the human condition of our lives. So it might get a little dark as we go in, but it's Lent, right? There should be a little darkness in Lent. Um, so that we can appreciate all the more the beauty and the glory of the resurrection. So I'm going to tell this little story. It might be the only little light <laughs> for uh, much of our discussion um, this evening. This was within the last year or so, um, maybe uh, in the spring of the last year. And I was opening up our chapel for mass and was over there kind of putzing around, getting things ready, setting up. And two of our alumni, young alumni, still in college, came by and they were extremely early. And they came in and they sat in one of the pews about halfway back in the church. And I was a little curious um, they'd been to Mass before, but not, not as regularly. And so I went over to chat. I had taught them both. And I kind of asked them if they remembered that Mass was at 10.30 and not at 10, because there was almost no one there. And they knew. They knew. And... What they were there for, the two of them, 
these are college kids, was to say the rosary together before Mass. Here I was just thinking they messed up the, messed up the time. They didn't know what they were doing, you know, they were kind of wandering around. But they wanted to say the, the rosary together, the two of them. And it, it kind of touched my heart. And uh, so I excused myself and went about the thing is. However, when I passed by a little bit later, <laughs> they had their little cheat sheet out on how to say the rosary. <laughs> they had forgotten, you know, the prayers at the beginning and the prayers at the end and all of this stuff. And I thought, oh, well, there we go. That's Catholic education for you right there, right? <laughs> but I share that because I want to start out this evening by saying what we know, all of us in our hearts, that there's a great deal of hope and goodness in the world. There's a great deal of hope and goodness in our church, in young people. I think sometimes we, we can get into a, a funk based upon all of the stuff in the news and the craziness that's going on in the world. And we think, like my grandmother used to say, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and things are just... I don't know that things are worse than they used to be, but I think there's plenty, far more than we see or recognize or acknowledge, goodness that exists in people and in the world. And I can, I can swear to you now in this sacred space that my... 20 some odd years of working in education, I am filled with optimism about our future. Um, despite all the stuff that's going on. So, um, right, we start with Almighty God. The Trinity, a community within God's self. We have God's call, God's voice into our world that kind of culminates, that kind of reaches its apex in the now. <laughs> I know these, you may not be able to see this or not, but right in the incarnation, that's supposed to be the nativity, this, this little thing here. <laughs> Can you all see that? Can you see the infant Jesus there? <laughs> right? The uh, St. Joseph, the Blessed Mother, the, uh, the baby Jesus, the nativity, it, it kind of culminates in the incarnation. For God so loved the world that in the fullness of time, he sent his only son, right? To be just like us in all things, but sin. So 
incarnation, and tomorrow we'll talk more fully about this return to Almighty God that is kind of the goal, the destination of the spiritual life, of our journey together, of our lives in general, whether we're believers or not. Um, but down here in the bottom, it's going to get a little, uh, a little murky. So I'd like to start out tonight with a far more authoritative source than St. Augustine. This is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. Jesus then addressed this parable to those who were convinced of their own righteousness. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee took up his position and spoke this prayer to himself. O oh God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector right here. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes on my whole income. But the tax collector stood off at a distance and would not even raise his eyes to heaven but he beat his breast and he prayed, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I solemnly tell you, the latter went home justified, but the former did not. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbled himself will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. This parable intrigues me. Both the Pharisee, it seems to me, and the tax collector were already on the path. They went to the temple to pray. So they're already believers. And Jesus, I think, chose these two types of characters for a reason. The Pharisee, of course, was the religious leader of the community, learned in the law, kind of an example for the community. And the tax collector, 
was despised because he was a traitor. He exploited his own people on behalf of the enemy, on behalf of the Romans, the occupying force who were collecting taxes. And he worked for them. So automatically, at the very beginning, Jesus is setting up this kind of contrast. And he's going to throw everything upside down. And what strikes me about this passage, it's almost comical, right? The tax collector, or the Pharisee, he walks right up to the temple. And his, he, uh, his prayer is kind of crazy. Thank you, God, that I am not like everybody else. I'm exceptional. And thank you. <laughs> But it's interesting that the scriptures give us a little detail. It says, the Pharisee spoke this prayer to himself. Now, it does mean he said it silently to himself. But it also has this sense of he's saying this prayer for himself, to himself. Because all he talks about in his prayer is himself. And the things that he lists are good. He fasts. He tithes. He's generous to the parish. Obeys the commandments. He's praying. He's doing everything that he's supposed to do. And yet it's terribly wrong. He's stuck. And the tax collector, the one that we think is the, the one who doesn't belong, he stands at a distance from the temple. He won't even look up. He beats his breast, and his prayer is one line and a very simple line at that. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it becomes evident from Jesus' response that the tax collector is making far greater progress on the path, on the journey, than the Pharisee. Despite everything that the Pharisee is doing. And this, this little parable, I find, challenges us, all of us, who have already committed ourselves to walking the path who have committed ourselves to making the journey. Because it's evident that the Pharisee's prayer is not enough. His fasting, not enough. His tithing, not enough. 
And this tax collector who exploits his own people somehow has what is necessary. And he goes home justified, while the Pharisee does not. It makes us a little uncomfortable because it inverts our expectations. And it challenges us, all of us, to look at ourselves a little bit more critically. And it pushes us to do a little bit more. Now, the parable asks us, well, then what does the Pharisee need to do in order to become the tax collector? In order to make the progress, to grow closer to the Lord, to be a better person, a better human being. And it's interesting that the, the parable tends to focus upon things that are interior. Really, the only thing that the Pharisee needs to do is to change. And it's not necessarily change the exterior things. Fasting is a good thing. We undertake the discipline of fasting in this season of Lent. Prayer is a wonderful thing, a necessary thing. And we intensify our prayer in this season of Lent. Tithing, generosity to the church, to the poor, absolutely essential. Obeying the commandments, of course. It's something more than that. And it's interior. It's the disposition, the inner disposition of the Pharisee that cries out for the need for change. And the tax collector, he knows who he is. He knows what he's done. And he throws himself entirely upon the mercy of God. And that's enough. It's a hard passage from the scriptures. It's difficult for us to, to hear and to reflect upon. And I think that's where we start to enter into the muck this evening, here at the beginning of Lent. We're going to dirty our feet for a little bit. Um, on Friday, in Catholic churches around the world, there will be Stations of the Cross. It's a wonderful, wonderful meditation, but it leads us into the darkness of our faith as we accompany Jesus into his crucifixion. This terrible event that brings us salvation, that gives us hope. And this, I think, is part of the central mystery 
of Christian faith. I, uh, there, there was an incident that occurred in 1987. I've used this before um, at school. In 1987, the Archbishop of Paris, Cardinal Lustiger, he opened the process for the canonization of a young Frenchman who had been executed by the state. Because he had been convicted in court of killing a cop. He murdered a police officer. The Archbishop's decision to open the cause for sainthood for this guy caused a lot of controversy in the French church and in French society. And it surrounded a young man by the name of, no, I don't, I don't speak French, so pardon my pronunciation. Jacques Fesch is his name. And he was executed by the French state in 1957, guillotined um, because of his crime. And of course, killing a police officer is one of the worst. He, uh, he grew up in a very wealthy family. His father was a very, very successful banker, one of the most successful in France at the time. And he was, he was now this is a judgment on my part, he was, he was spoiled, um, lived the life of a, a playboy. He, he didn't finish the schooling that his family was paying for. Um, he quit early and decided he was going to ride horses and travel with his friends. And, and eventually his father got a little tired of it and got him a job, a position at the bank uh, to work. Well, he tried that and he lasted maybe a couple of months and then he got bored with it and he quit. And he spent a good amount of time kind of bar hopping and living the good life at his father's expense. Eventually, he got it into his head that he and his buddies wanted to cruise the Mediterranean and so uh, he needed a boat. And of course, he went to his dad and asked for the money to buy a boat so that he and his friends could cruise the Mediterranean. And his dad, of course, said, no, tough. And he cut him off. He got sick of it and he cut him off. Well, Jacques, uh, decided to take matters into his own hand, and he knew one of his father's friends in the banking business. And in the middle of the day in Paris, he went to rob this guy in his shop on a street in Paris. He was a, a kind of money changer, so he, he took gold and silver and I guess, converted it to cash. So he went, walked into the store, the shop, the business, middle of the day. He had acquired a uh, small caliber handgun pistol, 
kind of a pea shooter, it was almost nothing, went in there and he demanded money from his father's friend. The guy, of course, refused. And he took the butt of the pistol and he smashed him on the head. The guy knocked him out, fell to the floor. He grabbed the cash, about 300,000 francs at the time, and ran out the door into the street. Well, the shopkeeper, the businessman, recovered rather quickly, and he gave chase. And he was screaming at him as he was running down the street. He robbed me. He, he uh, stole from me. And it just so happened, strangely enough, that a French police officer rounded the corner and saw the guy chasing this young man, and the police officer gave chase. Well, the Jacques, young Jacques, kind of panicked. And he started to shoot behind him wildly as he was fleeing, and a bullet struck the police officer in the heart and killed him instantly. And the police officer had two children at home. Jacques continued his flight, and within a couple of blocks, he was caught and arrested. And in prison, not in prison, in jail, awaiting trial, he was arrogant, unrepentant, saying he wished he had a machine gun instead of a little pistol. And his lawyer happened to be a very devout Catholic. And his lawyer was working with him. He faced the death penalty for killing a police officer. And Jacques ridiculed the lawyer, called him Pope Paul, um, because of his Catholic faith. And eventually, uh, he went to trial, and he was found guilty, convicted, and to be executed. One night in prison, Jacques was lying on his bunk, and by the grace of God, came to some kind of awareness of the horrible nature of what he had done. And with the help of his lawyer and the Dominican chaplain to the prison, he started to pray. He kept a journal, which was later published, he wrote letters to his family, begging their forgiveness for the pain that he had caused them. And eventually, he reached out to the merchant, the businessman, and one of the children of the police officer that he had killed by letter. Those letters in that journal were since published after his execution. And his final words, recorded by the witnesses to the execution, Holy Virgin, have mercy on me. And we think of the tax collector 
1987, the archbishop decided to open the cause, the process for the canonization of this guy. And like I said, it caused a great deal of controversy. The chief of the police union in France objected violently and appealed to Catholics, to the church, to the archbishop personally, about what kind of person were they going to hold up as an example? What is he really saying? And it raised all kinds of questions in the secular press. Is change possible? Can a person really change? Can bad people become good? Can good people become bad? And even within the church, in theological circles, it raised all kinds of questions about the radical nature of Christian mercy and about the depth of genuine forgiveness. To my knowledge, despite the archbishop's efforts starting back in 1987, this guy has not been recognized by the church. Even though there are a lot of people today who have read his letters and read his journal who feel like he actually is in heaven. I don't know. I don't know. Personally, I, of course, I believe in mercy. I believe in forgiveness. You wonder in someone in those circumstances, right? They're facing death. They better get their act together. Maybe he did. I don't know. But it raises, uh, I think, important questions for us about the extent of God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's grace, and the extent of our own mercy and our own forgiveness of each other. And I'm confronted with that when I encountered this story of this young man in his late 20s. And not only on a societal level, but as I mentioned, on a personal level, in terms of my own sense. But I do know that change is an essential element of the spiritual life. That conversion is a part of the journey of faith. And I have seen, I have experienced that the closer that we come to Almighty God, 
as we walk the path, perhaps over many, many, many years, or perhaps like some of the saints, it happens much more quickly. Saint Teresa of Lisieux was a, was a, I don't, she was like 23 when she passed away, I think, something like that. But I do believe that the closer we come to Almighty God, the, the further we journey, the more we become aware of our own weakness, our own failures, our own sinfulness. It's almost as if, as we get closer to the pure goodness of God, the radical holiness of God, we see just how broken we are in comparison and how much we need him and we need his grace and mercy in our lives. And so perhaps we can understand why that tax collector did not even approach the temple, wouldn't even look up, but prayed very simply, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. St. Augustine one time said that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. I like that. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. So in some ways, what does the Pharisee need to do in order to become like the tax collector? He needs a little humility. Right? He needs to abandon this kind of judgmentalism of everybody else. They're all greedy, he said. <laughs> right? Everyone else is greedy. They're adulterous. I, however, tithe. Okay. He, he needs a good dose of humility. And Augustine defines humility as the awareness of the reality of who we are. That's it the awareness of the reality of who we are, both good and bad, our strengths and our weaknesses, our successes and our failures. And I think the Pharisee is called to broaden his understanding of where it is that God's grace that God's presence can be found. Because he dismisses the tax collector completely. And yet it's the tax collector who is justified. It's the tax collector who is lifted up by Jesus as an example. So the Pharisee, has, his vision is kind of off. He doesn't see and I think he, he has bought into a presumption about where God's grace is active or where God's presence can be encountered. And there's a, there's a strain throughout the scriptures, I think, that helps us to understand this. You think of the par we think of the parable of the, the good shepherd. 
Where is the good shepherd to be found? Not with the 99. The good shepherd is found with the one that is lost. That's where he goes. We think of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. It's not the good son who's working, slaving away on behalf of his father. It's the son who has squandered everything and run off, who dared to ask his father for his share of the inheritance while his father's still alive. And then squandered it. The, the encounter between Jesus and the tax collector Zacchaeus. He's walking down the street and he notices little Zacchaeus who's climbed a tree so that he can catch sight of Jesus. And it's him, Zacchaeus, a tax collector again, that Jesus goes and visits, goes to his home. Out of all the people that are there, and of course, Zacchaeus is over, overwhelmed by Jesus' graciousness toward him, that Jesus would even notice him, unlike the Pharisee who disregarded the tax collector. He's overwhelmed. I'll give half of my wealth away. Even before Jesus comes into his home. Uh, the woman who anointed Jesus' head and feet at Bethany. Right? She walked into the Pharisee's house because she, she saw Jesus in there. And she brings the most expensive thing that she has, this priceless jar of oil, of perfume. And she breaks it and she pours the oil over Jesus' head. She kisses his feet. And the Pharisee, of course, is indignant. Look what this woman is doing. And Jesus favors her. It, it kind of pushes us to reevaluate where God's grace is most effectively at work. Where is God's presence? And in some ways, God's grace, God's presence is most visible in suffering, in oppression, in exclusion, in isolation, in loneliness, in sickness. That's where God is present. Now, the crazy thing is, is that's where all of us are, to greater or lesser extent, in our lives. Whenever we present ourselves before Almighty God, we present ourselves as a people in need. We need Him always, every moment of our lives. And that's where God is. That's where God's grace will be. Pope Francis uses the image of the church as a field hospital. It's kind of an interesting image. It's not the state of the art, brand new, high technology hospital 
that's all clean and beautiful. That's not the image of the church. He chooses a field hospital that's out in the front line where all the injured and the wounded first come. That's the church. I, uh, I'll tell you a story. I, um, I used to teach for a number of years at a high school up in uh, Chicago, St. Rita High School. It's a high school run by the Augustinians on the south side of the city. Very, very different than Cashel Hall and Midtown. Very, very different. All boys, oh, all boys, nine through 12. And at that time it was big. It was like 800 kids, all boys. And most of them, it was an urban school. So most of them came from the south side of Chicago. We had a few that came in from the suburbs, children of alumni. And class sizes were much larger than at Kasha. I, I had about 30, 32 in a class when I was teaching up there. It was just very different. The kids, <laughs> my, my first week, on a, when I was assigned there, I was brand new to St. Vita High School, and I wrote up a stack of detentions. They call them jugs up there, justice under God. <laughs> Jug. I wrote up a stack of them because walking down the hallway, every kid seemed to use the F word like all the time. It was just part of their language. And I thought, you can't say that. You can't say that in front of me. So I, was, I would write them up. And then the dean, the dean of men, who handled all of the jugs, came and he, he said to me, now, Father, you, you, you can't be doing that. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a different, it's a different culture, right? It's a different environment. There were fights all the time. There was a fight every week. There were food fights. We haven't had a fight at Casha Hall in years and years. Um, but it was just different. It was just a different environment. I loved it. <laughs> I did. I did. They were, they were good-hearted. But anyway, so I was there, and my classroom was on the academic wing at the very end of the corridor. And there was a stairwell from the first floor up to the second floor, just beyond my classroom. And I was coming back from lunch, up that back stairwell to get to my classroom to open up for the next class. And I came up the stairs and there was a, a student in front of me, upperclassman. I didn't know him, I had not taught him. Big guy, football player, lineman, big. And he didn't realize that I was behind him. And he's lumbering down the hallway and he's spitting on the lockers. as he's going down the hall. Well, of course, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get him. And uh, so I did, and I gave him a jug. <laughs> and uh, part of the, the service for the jug was to come to my classroom after school and do work. They had to scrape the gum off of the undersides of the desks. Um, so, I get him after school, he comes to my classroom, and because I had 30 students in the class, one of the classrooms were big, and I put him to work on the far side of the classroom. I'm sitting at my desk trying to grade stuff or get stuff done, and there were two freshmen 
that would kind of hang out in my classroom until their ride came to pick them up. So there were a couple of them in the classroom and then this, this guy, this football player, scraping gum off the desk at the other side. And I wasn't really paying attention, but the two freshmen, they were friends, and one of them noticed that the other freshman, his hands were kind of bruised and cut up a little bit. And the kid asked him, because it's St. Rita High School, was it a fight? And this kid, a freshman, 14 years old, told him that it wasn't a fight. The night before, his mom and her boyfriend got into a big argument at home. And they were yelling and cursing at each other. And it went on forever. And he hid in his room, trying not to listen to that. And he got so worked up and so emotional that he punched the wall. He didn't know what else to do. And so his knuckles were all kind of... And this kid, this football player, apparently must have been listening in as well. And he gets up off the floor from scraping the gum, and he starts walking over here. And of course, I'm like, what is he doing? He gets up and he walks over there and he walks up to this freshman and he just puts his arm around him. And this kid, this little kid, broke down and sobbed, sobbed, and kind of buried his head in this older kid's chest. He didn't say anything. The football player didn't say a word. Not a single word. And after a second or two, he let go, walked back across the classroom, got back down on the floor, continued to scrape gum. When the two freshmen had left, and I was going to go talk to the counselor the next morning, I asked this guy, I said, do you know him? Didn't know him at all. Didn't know him at all. I was kind of floored by that, kind of overwhelmed by that. I had pictured that this kid spitting on the lockers had no respect for anything. Cocky. And then to show such empathy, to feel it, and to do something about it for a kid that he didn't know. And as I've reflected upon that over the years, I think there's something very, very significant in that. That in the muck, in the messiness, in the sinfulness of our lives, God's grace is at work. 
God's presence can be found. And in some ways, perhaps, that might be God's favored place to be. When we're struggling, we can't find the way. We don't know what to do. We've lost someone in our lives. We've done something that we regret. And God reaches out to us. And God calls us to himself. The mystery of the incarnation, again, that God humbled himself to come among us to experience everything that we experience as human beings in order to lift us up, to save us. I do believe that despite everything that we see and hear in the media, that the church is holy. I saw a study one time where they, they did a, they did a, like a, 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 like a month long examination of the references to the Catholic church in popular TV shows and film for a month. And they were almost always negative almost entirely negative. They portrayed Catholics as weird freaks. Um, the Catholic clergy as you know, messed up. Um, anything. Almost exclusively negative. And of course, that kind of a message consistently in our society is going to impact us and Im impact everybody especially people who don't know the church experientially. Now, granted, our church is messed up. We have significant problems. We do. However, the church is holy. And it's holy, not necessarily because we are holy. <laughs> But the church is holy because of Christ's presence among us. That we are the body of Christ in the world. And whatever good we're able to accomplish, whatever positive impact we're able to make upon each other, upon the, our society, we do that because of God's grace because of God's presence, because of God's power. One of Augustine's, one of my favorite lines from Augustine, Augustine saves us, not because we are good, but because he is good. That in some ways it's God's free gift to us because he loves us. And he suffered, and he died, and he rose again to set us free. So in a sense, if we return to the Pharisee and the tax collector, 
I don't believe that we are made holy or that we make progress in the spiritual life because we tithe or because we pray, though we should, or because we obey the commandments, which we should. I think we are made holy by God's grace, by opening our hearts and our minds to him and offering our lives, even the little things that we try and do every day, by offering ourselves to him so that he might do with us whatever he wills for our children, for our families, for our parish, for our schools, for the world. Amen. Um, tomorrow, just a little trailer for tomorrow, we will look at this mystery of the church in a little bit more depth. I want to talk a little bit about, and I'd be interested to hear any of your experiences on the reality of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S people who, when you ask them what is their religious tradition, and they mark the box, none. And they're growing. People who study this stuff say that that's the fastest growing group within the religious landscape in the United States today. I heard a scary fact. Um, I was at a conference in San Diego of the heads of all of the Augustinian schools in the country. And there was a young friar there, a young Augustinian, full of energy and zeal from Philadelphia. And he gave us a little statistic. And he said that for every person who joins the Catholic faith, for everyone who is baptized, whether as an infant or they come in through the RCIA program, there are 6.5 who leave. Now, many of them die, but 6.5 who leave. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem. And I'm sure every one of us here, we know people who are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, for whatever reason. So I want to kind of look at that a little bit um, tomorrow. Anyone have any questions or comments or anything you might wish to share before we end? Sir? St. Vita High School on Western Avenue. No, no, we hate... Now, here we go. You see, I, I fall into it. I've been gone from St. Vita for 10 years or more, and I fall right back into it. We hated Mount Carmel. <laughs> Because uh, Mount Carmel, they were one of our big rivals athletically. And Mount Carmel is run by the Carmelites rather than the Augustinians. And so uh, I'll end, in fact, with a little comment on the various religious orders. Just one. It's a, little, it's a snide comment, okay? I, I, will, I will tell you. Right? What, we're still in the muck here, so... <laughs> At the bottom. I'll, I'll just add a little bit, okay? You know, everyone loves the Jesuits. The Jesuits are the big deal. 
Here's my. <laughs> I probably should not be doing this. Is Sharon here? Yeah, there's Sharon. <laughs> but uh, the uh, our symbol as Augustinians is is a heart on a book. And frequently, if you see a statue or an image of Saint Augustine, he's holding his heart in his hand because of his love for God, his passion, um, and the language that he gave Christianity was the language of love. He gave us much of that language in his writings and his preaching. So he's oftentimes portrayed with a heart, with an arrow through it and an open book. The Jesuits, and I will, I will, this of course does not include our Holy Father. <laughs> The Jesuits are well known for their scholarship, their educational institutions in the country. You think of Georgetown, Loyola, Boston College. I mean, there's tons of them. Two high schools in Chicago, high-powered high schools in Chicago are Jesuit. The, uh, the Jesuits, they have big brains. <laughs> and tiny hearts. <laughs> we Augustinians, we have, okay, we've got big brains and big hearts. So which would you rather have, right? <laughs> anyway, thank you all for coming. Have a good evening.